opportunity to reflect and contemplate the, the Dhamma, this uh, way of our life of considering and pondering the meaning of life and our own experience of it. So anything I say this evening is is to be uh, received, hopefully received in that spirit, not as a kind of uh, me telling you how, what you should do, but mere kind of references and ways of reflecting upon uh, Buddhist teachings that help us to say, maybe examine, look into our own experience of life a little more deeply. And the the one the 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 thing that the Buddha most was uh, concerned with was to be able to transcend the, the conditioning of the mind itself. So if you get beyond just the way the mind has been programmed or conditioned by your family, your culture, your education, your experience of life, when we interpret our life uh, from just merely the conditioning of the mind, then then we we get it wrong. We don't we don't see very deeply into it. We don't understand the ultimate reality uh, we cannot uh, because we cannot perceive ultimate reality we can only we have to realize that through our intuition through the openness of the mind and the thing that that holds us back and deludes us is the is the uh, conditioning of the mind uh, all the egotistical attitudes the the strong sense of one's own importance as a person, uh, the biases, the prejudices uh, that are instilled in us through our culture, through our class or ethnic background, uh, just the things we take <coughs> for granted. Uh, if we do not look at these uh, in a way that, say, isn't, isn't just, uh, doesn't just trigger off the conditioning process, then we begin to understand what we call the Dhamma. So, in, in the Buddhist way of, of uh, say, contemplating, we take refuge uh, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the, the three refuges, or the three jewels. Now, this is a, a paradigm, this word paradigm seems to be in vogue these days, and uh, it's obviously has a great significance for our age because they're talking about finding new paradigms for, because the old ones are kind of worn out and threadbare. But there's a basic paradigm or pattern that that we all, that is, that is say, beyond culture or religion or or any conventional, uh, any conventions that we have, uh, no matter how outdated or how modern they might appear at this moment, is that the experience of life for each one of us is the experience of a subject to an object. So that is means that 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 the uh, Buddha uh, saying taking refuge in Buddha is to take refuge in that pure awareness that is possible for any individual human being, pure awareness that isn't conditioned by anything that is not that is not that has no that is beyond language. Or emotional reactiveness. It's uh, say what we might call intuition, or that ability of the mind to be totally receptive uh, before it, uh, before you translate it and interpret what your what happens to you from your 
conditioning, your cultural conditioning. So that the the Buddha as a refuge is taking refuge in that which is ultimately pure, intelligent, knowing, beyond just cultural uh, uh, conditioning or modern education or anything that has been instilled in us uh, since we were born. It is connecting to ultimate, pure, universal intelligence uh, and mental clarity, uh, immortality, uh, and this is the way of, say, mindfulness. When we talk about the means that Buddha taught was through mindfulness, is letting go of the conditioned realm as an identity in order to abide in trust more in that state of pure awareness, pure receptivity that hasn't been cluttered yet by uh, the the ego or the sense of or the the views, the fears, the desires that tend to uh, operate in our in our minds. Then the Buddha, being the pure subject, sees the Dhamma, or the truth of the way it is. So Dhamma, in this sense, as a refuge, is truth. But it's not a kind of abstracted truth, a kind of truth is some kind of, of intellectual uh, ideal, but truth as, of the moment as is, the ability to be with, this moment as is, and to see it in in that clarity, in the, of uh, and pure intelligence, universal intelligence, uh, so that the Buddha knows and sees the Dhamma. The Buddha can contemplate Dhamma, or the way things are, the way it is, and the way it is, say in the in the way that we're experiencing it, in the forms of it, is that we that the conditioned realm that we're very much experiencing at this moment through the body and through the senses is that it, it was born and dies, it arises and ceases. So that the conditioned realm is seen in, 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 in from that perspective of, of observation, witnessing the conditioned realm as a conditioned realm, whatever, no matter what the condition might be, if it's a physical one or a mental one, emotional one, psychic one, uh, subtle or coarse, good or bad, high or low, right or wrong, conditions are what arise and cease. And that that way of knowing and observing and witnessing is the way of putting the conditioned realm in the perspective of Dhamma. And then the Sangha, is the those who practice is the practical putting into practice as individual human beings that doing what is good refraining from doing what is bad to uh, our own kind of moral uh, commitments and integrity uh, to practicing and seeing and understanding the truth so that the sangha is it can be seen in terms of uh, a, a symbolic sum of, of bhikkhus or or people dedicated Buddhists, or it can be even uh, seen in terms of anyone who who is practicing in the right way. It could transcend even the Buddhism itself into a sense of all beings who are awakened and knowing and understand the truth, or practicing uh, the truth according to the the law of truth or the the, the law of the Dhamma. Now, when we to to put to see this three these three refuges in this way, uh, we can see them in in merely the kind of traditional Pali formulas, in which they uh, they sometimes mean a lot on on a kind of sentimental plane, or many of many Western Buddhists they don't mean very much. If you're born and grow up in a Buddhist uh, country, then of course. Uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha are are empowered by that culture itself to have a lot of meaning and significance. But most of us who were not born or did not grow up as Buddhists, uh, oftentimes these words merely are exotic and even sentim- and sentiments rather than uh, understanding the profundity and the practicality and the immediacy and the internalizing of these refuges so that they're here and now refuges rather than 
formulas you take when you come to the monastery and want to proclaim yourself as a Buddhist in some way. Which is also to be uh, commended and admired, but, but if it really only remains on that level, then it, it, is, it, is, it is not uh, going to lead you to enlightenment, it's merely going to make you into some kind of Buddhist. Now the experience each one of us is having at this moment is uh, that we're, we're, we're conscious beings, e each individual being is, is feeling this moment in some way. You're conscious because you're born and we tend to interpret everything that we're experiencing in the, through the conditioning of the mind which is based on I am, the sense of I am and me and mine. And so we have our own personalities, our own uh, particular uh, characters and tendencies and habits and, and attitudes and various uh, forms of fears and desires and, and whatnot that, that are quite individual uh, and unique to each individual uh, person here. But <laughs> each one of us is experiencing consciousness and we're feeling, and because of consciousness, we're feeling that which impinges and touches us. That's what, that which we hear, see, smell, taste, touch. That which we think or remember affects this moment in some way or another. This is the sense realm that we're born into. We're living in a, in a sensory realm, and it's like this. It feels like this. Sometimes it's hot, it's cold, it's... It, neither hot nor cold, sometimes pleasure, painful, it can be happy or sad, it can be uh, elated or depressed or, or neither, neutral, it can be all kinds of, of different experiences of uh, positive and negative. And when we interpret it on the personal level of what I like, what I want, what I don't like, what I don't want, then, then we do make endless problems around our experience of life. Because the human mind also is as a, as a retentive memory. Uh, we, we, we have language and therefore we can, we can think and we, can re we have all kinds of memories and we remember what happens to us. If, especially in its extremities, the great successes or the great pleasures or the uh, horrible, painful experiences of life, the tragedies, we remember. Usually we don't remember the ordinariness of life. Talking to some of the monks this morning, we were saying, being a bhikkhu for, for so many years, uh, I, I've been a monk 25, 26 years. It seems like 26 years now uh, of not making very heavy comedy because it's so restricted and disciplined in our life. You don't, you can't, you're not allowed to do anything very bad. <laughs> And because of that, it, you don't have very strong memories of the, it, because most of the life has been fairly in a, in a kind of neutral territory. So you remember some things, but you, not like the memories you had before you were monk, where you were all over the place, up and down, and and uh, elated and depressed, and and involved in all kinds of foolish actions and and things that you regret. But being conscious then is when we interpret our conscious experience from this personal position, from the conditioning of the mind, then, then life becomes increasingly more difficult and complicated. Because you can only, when you're seeing about what you want and what you don't want and how life should be and how it shouldn't be, and taking it all very personally, then it, then it just seems you, you end up feeling despair with yourself or the world around you. You, you, you can see so many frightening things and experience so many disappointments and, and you can, and even if you haven't had all that much unhappiness in your life, you can, still can imagine it of the most horrible things happening that even when when life is at its best we still can uh, bring into 
our conscious experience, possibilities of losing it all, losing our health, losing our loved ones, losing our money, everything going wrong. And uh, that in itself, is, may, on a personal level, is frightening. And we dread <coughs> it, worry about it, and, and, and suffer anxiety. Modern materialism and, and the attitudes of the time, and we, we, most of us come from that kind of, of conditioning where the, the consumer values have been made very important. To, we don't even mind being called consumers anymore, do we? Say, you're a consumer. You, don't, you wouldn't even be offended by that. Most of you, I'm sure, it's just something ordinary. But yet when you... When you think of yourself as a consumer on a personal level, it's not a very nice image, is it? <laughs> you think of this kind of mouth, it just kind of... <laughs> and have, trying to get everything you can. Uh, interpreted on your, as a person, it's not a very attractive image. And yet we've gotten used to being told that we're consumers, in a consumer society, a society that's consuming. It seems to be consuming itself like the Ouroboros kind of thing and just we end up eating ourselves uh, destroying ourselves through our own uh, uncontrolled desire and consumption we live in a time where material values have been made the real made into what we call the real world and spiritual values are considered uh, not very relevant to any practical uh, life experience even though that's not always true that's many of the assumptions of a consumer society and materialism is the material world is the real world a spiritual uh, world is somehow not real or not very real we consider ourselves very much identified with how we look our appearance whether we're uh, a male or a female or, or what color our skin happens to be or uh, what uh, whether we're uh, attractive or unattractive or whatever is, is very much our identity uh, as a person and our worth in the society is how hard we work and and how well we're liked and how we uh, how acceptable we are as a person how much we do how much we buy how much we have how much we consume <laughs> So being a person in the modern age is, it, when you really contemplate it, is a rather it's a it's an insult because uh, we really we're really looking at ourselves in very low uh, kind of degrading perception, and we're looking at humanity as if it, that's all it's about, and you've just got to kind of con it into into buying the latest things and 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 deceive it and and uh, kind of intimidate it and coerce it and uh, fool it in some way so that, that you, 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 you go along with the whole illusion that you are this person, this, this body, this man, this woman that needs this and that and should have, life should have these kind of things and everybody should have a job, everybody should be working, everybody should uh, have their home, everybody should have a car, and, and we know the results of that. I mean, everybody wants a car. I was in Calcutta last February, uh, an Indian friend was saying, was apologizing for the, the, the kind of backwardness of the city, which, which is uh, kind of quite outstandingly, uh, has many outstanding uh, problems. And I said, well, I can hardly wait. Uh, Calcutta is one of those cities that, that just attracts millions of people. It grows every day by the thousands. It's about, about, I don't know, 10 million people or so live in, in Calcutta. And I said, when, well, I can hardly wait for the day when everybody in Calcutta has their own car. <laughs> <laughs> Because the traffic as it is, is bad enough in Calcutta. If everybody had their own car in Calcutta, you wouldn't be able to move. Uh, so, but, the, the, but then these are the images of the right to get what you want, have everything. And it's based on this very materialist 
attitude of me and mine and appealing to our desires and our vanity. Well, in spite of all that, I mean, one can be cynical and put humanity down as a kind of, as that's, that's, all, that's the best we can expect from life. But intuitively we know better, don't we? There's something in us that, that doesn't quite, even the, even the most cynical human being has moments where uh, you realize that there's more to it than that. And that there's something in all of us that aspires, that has some kind of longing for truth and admires the good and the beautiful, and that, that longs for that. Not just uh, uh, just to buy something, to, to be an owner of, of something beautiful, that's not it, but it's more on the intuitive plane. Uh, something in us uh, senses beyond just the, the conditioning of modern materialist thinking, or just cultural conditioning at its best. There's something also, in, and you see it in all humanity, no matter what, whether it's a primitive tribe or, or modern uh, uh, civilizations, whatever, there's still something that aspires, an aspiration towards the divine or something, whatever terms you want to use. We sense that there's more to, to our life. It has more meaning, more significance, than just the, the conditioning that we've acquired and the material realm and the sensory experiences that we have. So religion is, is something that, that is very much a part of human experience, even though modern materialism, communism, these philosophies that have, have uh, taken over the human mind and, and, have, and uh, have given us uh, this... Uh, and have, have put us in a position where we we have almost dismissed this aspiration as not being anything real, realistic or even worthwhile. And yet without this, our lives are, if we were just consumers, just born to consume and procreate and die, uh, and that's all there was to it, then we would be satisfied with just that, wouldn't it? I mean, like, if, if that's all we can ever, if that's all we're here for, and that's all we can expect, then I can't see how we could aspire to anything beyond that. Uh, and, but because we, we, even if we get everything we want, and, and life is at its best, it's still not satisfactory to us. I think that's what many of us have realized, even though, say, myself, I've never been wealthy, but I've always had enough of the goodies to know that just having more of it would, would, uh, is, I would hate to spend my life just trying to acquire more goodies, because I've had enough of them to, to know that that's not where it's at, that's not what I want to do with my life. And that comes from what? Not from just being a kind of helpless victim uh, 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 of the conditioning process, just a human being who's here to consume and then, then uh, have to get you too old to your teeth fall out and you're blind and you kind of uh, die. That, that's all there is. Then, say, I would... I w there would be no 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 interest in anything more than that. So this religious aspiration, spiritual aspiration, is is something that is that haunts us or follows us, or and something that we uh, many of us begin to realize something we have to respond to in some way. And so religions are. Uh, conventions that try to, to uh, say, guide us or point or direct us to an ultimate realization. And so that's what the, the Lord Buddha was, what he was doing, was his attempt after his own realization was to try to uh, give a conventional teaching, conventions that 
that would be carried on in a tradition and in a lineage so that future generations would benefit from that teaching. And so he, he, used, uh, tra- he, he, he established a tradition. And so this is what very much what we say represent, say the Buddhist monks uh, sitting here. Is, uh, we are traditional Buddhist monks. And this is not as a boasting or, or, or thinking that this is something, uh, taking it all on a personal level, as I'm a Buddhist monk. Uh, but it, it is pointing to the, the function of tradition, its purpose. Because a tradition is, is that which is handed from one, is, is established by the founder of a tradition and then handed from one generation to the next. It's what's handed down, the actual meaning of the word. So, say in the Theravada school of Buddhism, we look very much to the fact that we we believe that our tradition uh, was handed down to us by the Lord Buddha himself 2,535 years ago in India. Uh, And that tradition, that was set off by the Gotama the Buddha uh, and has been maintained and kept alive through 2,500 years through the, through the, the uh, conventional Sangha, Bhikkhu Sangha. So this is, say, we see it here now in, in uh, Devon with uh, traditional Buddhist Sangha. Well, modern values also tend to, tend to uh, criticize tradition. And think it's, you know, it's all worn out stuff. It's, it's just, you know, the, the kind of blindness of humanity. They have to have these traditions, and and uh, you can and you can you can fault traditions easily because because they are handed down from one generation to another. They can get easily distorted. Admittedly, that that uh, each generation can add or subtract from. Uh, from that, and if you've got a tradition that dates back 2,535 years, there could be a lot of uh, kind of adding and subtracting done to it in the process. But the one thing that, that I think is very admirable, in the, in the, especially from my own experience in the Theravada tradition, is that in spite of all the things that have been added to it, uh, somehow it's essential purity still remains. It's not, it's not like it's, it's so cluttered that you can no longer find its, true, its, its essence. Uh, it, sometimes, in, in like my own experience in Thailand, with finding a teacher like uh, Ajahn Chah, was, was, his, his, was teaching the, the essence, the essential teaching of the Buddha, and, the, and all the clutter uh, around that teaching uh, was he was trying to kind of uh, diminish it so that we weren't just being kind of ceremonial priests or or just operating uh, in in, uh, in on in that capacity in the society. He was trying to revive that whole uh, purpose of the Buddhist uh, of the Buddhist Sangha, where the the actual practice of meditation was the was what we we. Uh, Occupied our time with, and this this uh, practice of meditation is not just sitting under a tree, uh, going into some blissful state of tranquility, but it is very much reflecting on the nature of life and on the purpose and meaning and and what it is to experience life as an individual human being. And I remember uh, having many insights. Uh, uh, just through, through uh, say, beginning to just observe the most obvious things about feeling and about seeing uh, beauty and ugliness. You could contemplate in, the, uh, in those early years. You contemplate a lot. Just the power of beauty and ugliness uh, as an as an emotional experience, as a sensory uh, impingement. So you could contemplate, say, some some beautiful object like a flower you 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 could contemplate just the the attraction that that beauty has when you see something like a beautiful flower 
the magnetic attraction of how you want to go towards it. Well, even though that happens uh, to everyone, how many of you really contemplate that power? I'll say that the objective beauty that we that we uh, that happens to us, or that uh, that we experience in daily life, the power of the beautiful, just on the level of sight, and and that attract to be able to observe that power of attraction as an object, rather than just be blindly attracted. And so that is the what we call reflect ability to reflect on things the way they are. If we were merely creature conditioned creatures. We couldn't. We wouldn't be able to reflect on that. If we saw something beautiful, we'd just be attracted, and that's all. We 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 wouldn't be able to see attraction as an object. We we would just be attracted. Say like the animal realm, which uh, shares consciousness as a conscious form and feeling in the same way we feel. And that the animal world it certainly has consciousness and feeling, but it can't reflect on on its feeling. So a cat uh, chasing a rabbit is <laughs> is uh, is completely that. It can only be that. It can it can contemplate the desire, or the attractiveness, or the excitement of the chase for the little bunny. But we can, can't we? We could actually. So we might feel the same same excitement or the same attraction, but we can reflect on it. And so this is this is like what we call the Buddha mind, the ability to look at the way it is in terms of Dhamma rather than self. Now if we interpret that as self, we look at the flower, beautiful flower, and we feel this attraction, and then you interpret it on a personal level, you say, well, you have all this lust and greed for beautiful flowers. I see a beautiful flower, and I immediately want to pick it, I want to grab it, I want to make it mine. I'm such a greedy, lustful person. That's the personal interpretation. Or, or then you think, well, I shouldn't, you know, I should I should respect nature, I shouldn't go around wanting these things. I should be completely equanimous. You know, the Buddha was equanimous. He didn't, he didn't get all excited in uh, about things like that. And when he saw beautiful flowers, he probably just totally indifferent, didn't even notice. A beautiful flower, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. <laughs> and that's how I should be. I shouldn't. I shouldn't feel this attraction. And that's this, this is what I'm pointing to: is interpreting life's experience on a uh, as a personality, as a person, it's like that. As now translating that into dhamma. Seeing it in terms of Dhamma, we're we're looking at it as it as it actually is. There's this attractive feeling that, that the sense world is like this. We have eyes, and when beautiful objects contact the the eyes uh, of human of a human individual, then this this feeling arises. There's this attractiveness taking place. You feel what is attractive is like you pull towards it. You want it. You feel this attraction to the beautiful. And and you can observe that, you can witness that, and see it in terms of dhamma or the way it is, rather rather than taking it all very personally and and making value judgments about your worth or your abilities or lack of them. And the same applies to say ugliness or repulsiveness through the through the eyes or what we hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think. Now the conditioning of the mind is is very much uh, we're conditioned to think that we are the body. This is my body. I'm this. This is my face. I look like this. I am. We 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 have uh, uh, feelings and we identify with those feelings. I have. I feel this greed. I feel this desire. I feel this fear. This is my fear. These are my sexual desires. These are my habits, these are, this is in my memories, my life, what I want, everything uh, is, 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 that's the way we think, that's the way you're conditioned to think. 
in any society, even in a Buddhist country like Thailand, they still think like that. I am a man, I am a woman, I have, these are my, this is, this is my house, these are my things, my family, my loved ones, my children, my cat, my dog. So that we have these, the conditioning of the mind, cultural conditioning, which we can look at in, in terms of, we can just perpetuate the sense of, of self-involvement with it all and just go around with that. Or we can look at it in terms of Dhamma because we can listen to ourselves thinking. Uh, and you can hear yourself, the feeling of I, I am this way, is you can actually objectify that. You can you can hear, you can feel or experience this sense of I am this person, I am a man, I am a woman, I am English, I am uh, whatever, or the, the very highly personal things like I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, the, ten, the self-criticism, the sense of one's own uh, not worth very much or not good enough or not lovable or not acceptable or these kind of uh, uh, identities can be observed in, in, uh, as objects because they're conditioned into the mind. Now if you if you just like with, with one can fault say a lot of modern psychology because it tends to perpetuate this sense of self connected to your feelings. So that you know, you can end up thinking I'm a, I uh, I'm a schizophrenic, or I am a, a person. I'm a person that has a lot of depression, or I am a person that has an anger problem. Uh, I'm a person. I'm a, I am an abu- I was an abused child. It's the latest hang up, isn't it? Uh, I was, uh, I was an unloved child. Uh, these things, these things might be true. But as, as, as uh, t- in terms of, of Dhamma, they can be seen as merely the, fun- the condition of your mind arising and ceasing, which gives <coughs> you a perspective on it that liberates you from, from making the assumption that that is a kind of absolute truth and, then you, the, and, and it, that you, you really are. Say somebody who was abused as a child has ruined your life and, and that... Uh, that life in life shouldn't have been that way, and and the people involved in it w- should be punished, and or that you maybe you've got, you've you were something bad in a previous life, you deserved to be abused when you were a child. <laughs> it can get very comp- complicated, <coughs> but whatever it is, it is a condition of the mind, and we're putting it in that perspective, that paradigm of the Buddha seeing the truth rather than me with my problems. You can see what I mean. And it's, it's, it's really a skillful way of, of putting into perspective what you're actually feeling and thinking and putting it in a perspective that is, that is accurate. You're not saying it, it, it doesn't exist or you're not making comments about it. It's uh, if it's real or it's unreal or whatever. You're you're be, you're accepting that whatever it is, in terms of dhamma, the uh, whatever arises ceases and is not self. And in that way, you begin to have insight into your true nature, which is not conditioned and not uh, not uh, you're not uh, a conditioned thing. And no matter what your conditioning might be good or bad or indifferent, that's not the real obstacle to enlightenment. The obstacles are this ignorance and the attachments we form to these conditions out of this ignorance of not understanding truth. We tend to to spend our lives believing we're all kinds of things that we're not really and making very complicated problems around it all. And, And the whole society is busy doing it and we tend to reinforce each other's wrong views all the time. So I noticed in my teaching as a teacher, you think, I've got to be really careful about what I say because people tend to believe me. 
they, they empower me with thinking that I'm very, I must know a lot of things and a lot more wise, more wise than they are. And so, uh, you know, if I say they're this way or that way, they might believe me. And that would, <laughs> that would, uh, and if they believe me, they would, they would, then that the perception they have of themselves, they never see in terms of Dhamma. They say, Ajahn Sumedho said, I am an angry person. And so, and, and Ajahn Sumedho says, an angry person uh, must come confront his anger. And so, and then you go on from that, so that the whole thing becomes, I am an angry person, Ajahn Sumedho verified that. And, and you don't even know, I mean, you assume that you're an angry person all the time. You, you fix on that idea of yourself, rather than seeing that, that that is a perception that arises and ceases. So that's why in, in teaching one tries to, uh, the Buddha would avoid fixing identities on anyone by pointing to three characteristics, the anicca dukkha anatta, or the impermanence. Because whatever it is you're experiencing, anger or lust or elation or depression or whatever, it's impermanent. What arises ceases. So that's a good perception to use for reflection on your life experience, on what you're feeling, what's happening to you. Not as a dismissal of it and saying it's only impermanent and therefore it's not worth it. It's not a value judgment. We're not saying because it's any, uh, something is impermanent that it's worthless or that it, it should be just dismissed. But we're pointing to a way of looking at something in a, in, that isn't charged with value judgments or sense of personal worth or fears or desires. And we say dukkha or is unsatisfactory, whatever is conditioned because its nature is changed, it's dynamic and changing, therefore it can't truly satisfy us. It can may momentarily gratify and please us, but it has no lasting ability to satisfy. And so when we put all our hopes uh, on the conditioned world to, to make us happy and feel content and safe, we end up feeling somehow uh, not, it's not that way. No matter how hard we try to, to take refuge in the conditioned realm, in mortality, in the realm of death, we always end up feeling uh, frightened and threatened and despairing with it because we, we, we expect it to be something it cannot be because the very nature of conditioning is, is unsatisfying to us. We can't be satisfied. We can't find true contentment with the conditioned world. And so it's not a a rejection of the conditioned world is bad, it's just pointing to something that you can contemplate and see for yourself. To know that yourself. And then anatta, to the, the no-self or non-self, to, to be able to free your, your mind from the conditioned assumptions that you are this person, this thing, this body, this way. So, anicca dukkanata, the three characteristics of existence, uh, say, are good suggestions <coughs> to use and to contemplate. They're for reflection, not for belief. You don't want to go around believing, I'm impermanent and I'm unsatisfactory and I'm not, I'm nobody. But if I said, you are, uh, you have uh, many emotional hang-ups and you're neurotic, then you, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's true. <laughs> Modern materialists society is I think it very has made uh, as as uh, I think we've gone to an extreme of of selfishness in a way of of, uh, of 
of a sense of ourselves as being unique and individual person, personality. My own uh, background in American uh, conditioning is you, 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 you kind of take pride in I'm a unique individual. I'm an individual. I have my rights. And you don't have strong identities with, like, with your family or with your group or anything. You, in, in Asia, you have more uh, uh, identity, a wider identity, usually with your family or your, or your, the group you live in. Uh, but they, in my particular kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background, white middle-class American, was in individual, unique, separate, uh, get everything you can, uh, you have your rights, and you must demand and stand up for your rights. And somehow, even if your, your, your identity with family was, was minimal, with parents, you became increasingly more self-centered and selfish. I'm independent, I'm free to do what I want, you can't tell me what to do, I'm, I, I don't have to obey my mother and father or, or anyone, I can just do what I want. So that, that kind of attitude, say, in one way, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I appreciate it, because I could do what I wanted. <laughs> I became a monk. But <laughs> 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 also, it, it gives a very strong sense of it, some statistics, it's hard to believe, in America 60% of marriages uh, end up in, in divorces and things like this. Enormous uh, kind of uh, statistics, you know, of, of obviously, uh, I don't know how true statistic, how, how much you can trust the statistics, but <coughs> reflecting on the fact that, that people find it very hard to live with each other and to give up their own individuality for the sake of someone else. You know, their rights, their privileges, their uniqueness, their uh, all these, to, for the welfare of somebody else. And, uh, and, and including myself, it is certainly uh, you know, before I was a monk, it was very difficult to to maintain or sustain any lasting relationships because uh, I thought of myself first, and if the other person didn't think of me first, it was hard to live with them. <laughs> In the sangha life. Strangely enough, that that even though one was expecting, I was expecting more of a hermetic existence as a bhikkhu, I was thinking more of going off, you know, the, the monk going off and living in a cave, uh, where I wouldn't have, be bothered with all the problems that arise from living with people. Living with people always presents so many problems. And I like living alone. I could easily be a hermit. It would not be hardship for me. Uh, my mother told me when I was a little boy that that uh, I, I have a sister who's two years older and and when she was naughty uh, and my mother <clears throat> put her in her bedroom alone she found that unbearable and so there's one way of disciplining my sister was to when she was doing something she shouldn't my mother put her in her bedroom keep her there and then my sister would would uh, I can't bear this and she behave herself but when I do that I'd be really happy my mother said. <laughs> she said it didn't work as a punishment for me so I mean and I see I used to see the images like I, I remember seeing a picture of uh, some monk on Mount Athos uh, in you know hanging in some kind of box wooden Thing, hanging off the edge of a cliff over the GNC, you know. And they say once the monk enters this box, he never leaves. He stays there till he dies. And every day somebody comes up with some food and lowers it from the top of this cliff into this box that's hanging over the edge of this cliff. And uh, so, and, and they know when the monk has died because uh, the the food isn't eaten, so 
And as, as horrible as that sounds, that appealed to me a lot. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. So because of that, uh, life is obviously, there's a plot against me to prevent me from living in that way. Uh, so I find myself, you know, in a position <coughs> that I find that I've learned a lot from, and which also has has brought up a lot of of uh, strong feelings, and uh, has made me and has made has forced me to look at a lot of of fears and anxieties, and that that I wouldn't have if I could have life more on my own terms. So it's strange that that uh, you know coming here to England 15 years ago and being uh, the senior monk and, and with all, all the kind of uh, duties and responsibilities and relationships that one forms in this mm. life and all the people I know I know so many people now I have to send these Christmas cards out at Christmas time you know how hard it is to write Bhikkhu 800 times <laughs> you know <laughs> Two H's and two K's. <laughs> but also, one, did, I, I determined long ago after I began to get insight into Dhamma that you you had you couldn't you shouldn't try to control things for your own benefit. That you had to roll with the flow, whatever that was, because every attempt to try to control. Uh, life for my own benefit ended up by making it worse. In the first few years of my monastic life, I was desperately trying to control everything to get what I wanted out of it, and uh, and I just everything seemed to to backfire in some way. I began to get the point that that wasn't the way to practice. So I decided to roll with the flow, to go with the way it is, uh, has brought me to this point. But also, it one sees that that life uh, that that the 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 uh, say living in uh, communities and having to deal with with whatever happens to you in in whatever position you happen to be in is what you need to know. Well, I, this is how I see it. Whatever happens to me, good or bad, success or failure, sickness or health, whatever, is is what I will learn from. What is my, what we say, my karma. What I can investigate. What I can see in terms of Dhamma. Put it in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of self. In that way, then the flow of life is the, is the Eightfold Path rather than the, 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 the way of non-suffering. Is, is the flow of one's life rather than say, stopping the flow of everything to find some some kind of static place where nothing, you don't feel life anymore, nothing bothers you. In this way, because of the nature of our sensitivity and, and, uh, and, uh, the, and, and this conscious experience in this sensory realm, uh, it, it's going to bring us all kinds of experiences. Uh, uh, it has its great beauties and its great pleasures, uh, its loves and so forth. It also has its uh, pain, its misery, its despair, anger, hatred. And so these are a part of our human karma. These we all experience in some form or another. And the, then the practice is to put these experiences in the perspective of Dharma rather than keep uh, reaffirming these things uh, on a personal level. So say something like uh, worldly failure. Maybe you, you're, you're con you think of yourself as a failure. Or maybe you are a failure. <laughs> 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 maybe everyone thinks of you as a failure. But... but <laughs> And, and taken out on a personal level, that's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of Dhamma, it's, it's enlightening. And so it's up to you, really, isn't it, how you, 
how you determine, what you determine for your life. And even though that might sound simple, you know, as a, as a theory, as something to say, as a practice, it's quite difficult to look at your feeling of being a failure uh, and seeing that exactly for what it is. Because there's a tendency to either dismiss it, reject it, suppress it, or to, to indulge in it. But to be that which is aware and knowing and, and accepting of it as is, is the refuge in the Buddha, Dhammasanga. There's the right seeing, right knowing, right understanding, the right attitude about that, that which you are experiencing. More and more you, you begin to trust in this and, and really see it. it. That is the way it is. It's not, you're not just kind of brainwashing yourself into, into, into believing something again. You're actually by investigating and contemplating, you, you, you see it, it reveals its true nature to you. And through that, the this, this sense of an individual self, a personality, and that no longer seems, it doesn't, no longer has the same uh, impact on our conscious experience. And we, be, we, we find our a sense of unity, union, or in Buddhist terms, the one mind. But not the one mind as some, some kind of abstraction, but as a realization of, of universe, universality, oneness and unity, which is transcending the condition, the conditioning of the mind, or the, or the physical sensory conditioning, condition. So, for example, at this moment, here and now, I'm here. So this is this is the this is the this is the, this this being here. This form. This is where I'm. I'm looking at you. I can see you. And there's this sense sense experience taking place. And then, in in refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, there's the ability to see it in terms of Dhamma. Not, not, as, not taking it personally. Even if some, even if some personal feelings come up, one can look at those personal feelings objectively. So that that more and more, even the sense of the the personal emotional reactions are seen in terms of of conditions that you you accept, but you also resolve. You let go of. You no longer connect to, you no longer identify with, you no longer make assumptions from that. And more and more you trust in just the pure awareness, pure intelligence that's available to us all the time when we're mindful. Now this is a, a Buddhist approach of, uh, say, in that is uh, based on not on it, it's not a, it's a, it's a way of say of of starting with the common human experience of suffering and by investigating one's own experience of suffering and, uh, and to investigate suffering you have to accept it because suffering is usually what we try to get rid of or run away from and so anything that frightens or upsetting, unpleasant, painful, whatever, it, we tend to, if we're not mindful, we tend to try to get rid of it, run away from it. So the Buddha made this experience of suffering as a first noble truth, something to be understood. Your, what you, your own sense of just physical discomfort or emotional uh, pain or whatever it is, how severe or how minimal, you you understand it by accepting it, and through that you see the attachment, this the reactiveness and the the identity and the and the empower ability to empower this suffering with, with uh, on a personal level, and and it becomes and it overwhelms us, and by understanding this truth, 
we, we realize that we, we have the insight into letting go of suffering rather than attaching to it. And then, through real, real, then we realize the mind or our experience <coughs> when there's non-attachment. And that's what we mean by nibbana or nirvana. The realization of the nature of, of things when there's non-attachment. Realization of non-attachment. And that realization of non-attachment then is like a revelation of ultimate reality. So that in, even though Buddhism is a, a kind of strange religion in, in the in the, uh, uh, in the in the uh, in the religious uh, circles, people find Buddhism uh, uh, enigmatic. And our RE teachers come to Amaravati a lot, and they say, "Buddhism, how do you teach it?" So easy to teach the other religions. Buddhism is a real is really difficult because because Buddhism is almost starts at the opposite end from the other. The theistic religions tend to start from 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 uh, a doctrinal position, a metaphysical position, and and Buddhism starts from an, uh, an existential experience. But the aim is to realize metaphysical reality. So it's not it's not like just it's not just a humanistic form. Uh, it's not some people uh, feel very strongly that Buddhism is is not a religion or that it's just a philosophy or some kind of humanism. But it's not. It's a transcendent path uh, of ultimate realization. But it's 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 based on this on this. Uh, on, on a truth that is the most common experience to all human beings. Queen Elizabeth suffers. Not to mention you. <laughs> the most fortunate, uh, the most unfortunate human beings suffer. Though in Thailand we often say, brothers and sisters in old age, sickness, death, suffering, despair, grief and anguish. Because we all share that, don't we? We all experience old age, sickness, death, we all suffer from grief and despair and sorrow and anguish. It's not a morbid uh, kind of negative con uh, consideration. It's a kind of when we, when we relate to each other in the sense of that bond that we have in common, there's uh, that which we share in common. It's somehow uh, the, all the other stuff that we create around our personalities isn't so, isn't so important. We can we can argue about politics or about all kinds of things. You know, and really want to murder each other, but when we get to the common human uh, experience, we we feel compassion for each other. And so this is this is because of our reflective mind. We we can consider and contemplate our own humanity, and 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 recognize the common the common ground we share with all human beings everywhere. And, and this is, the, this is uh, say, the, the, the marvel of this, of this birth of being human. Because as difficult as it might be, and as painful as it can be, it also is the realm where enlightenment is possible, as Buddhist terms, in this human realm that we live in, the way it is the way you are, is where you can, through your right understanding of Dhamma, you can free yourself from the illusions that you, that you attach to that create the misery and suffering uh, of your life. And through that you transcend just the, the differences, the varieties, the, the, that which separates, that which uh, arises and ceases. And then the ultimate religious or mystical experience is ineffable. And that's not just this, as we say, remember when in the Christian church they used to say it's a mystery. And I used to think, oh yeah, give, tell me that again. You just, you don't, you, you know, anything you don't understand, you say it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> the cynic were to come out. But as you investigate Dhamma more and more, you realize it is a mystery. 
But you're, real, you're not just believing it because somebody tells you that, you know, or deny that, but you realize it, that it, it, it is ineffable, it, it's beyond the words and concepts and perceptions. And so the, that's where you need to see the limitation of perception and feeling and thought. You need not to dismiss it, but to know that, that, that by attaching and identifying with your thoughts and memories, you're, you're binding yourself to mortal conditioning all the time. And then you can't get beyond it. You're just stuck in a realm of, of reiterating the same things over and over again. And, but you can transcend it, not through uh, rejection, but through observe, observation, through mindfulness of it. So even your thoughts, memories, language, are seen in the terms of Dhamma. They arise and they cease. And that, and again, I it's not just a, a thought in the mind, say it's impermanent as a dismissal, but it, it, is, a, it is a reflective uh, uh, re- a realization of that. It's realizing and not just believing that. So I offer this for your consideration reflection for this evening. <coughs> <coughs>